sometimes we do want to um, leverage our co you know higher cognitive selves over over these things but sometimes we need to get out of the way and and trust them because they're very very good at making sense and filtering down highly complex systems as long as we're applying the right rules of thumb this is glenn murphy with nc systema and this is systema for life howie good morning how are you i'm good how are you glenn Pretty good, not bad actually. Today's uh, today started quite well, earlier than I wanted it to, but that's that's the uh, that's what happens when you have two kids under the age of six. Yeah, you should have thought of that a long time ago. Yeah, as uh, my friend Brian Brackaby likes it. Blackaby likes to say, uh, you had options. <laughs> Bill. Uh, so today, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, intuitions and gut feelings. We've kind of touched on this subject a little bit before um, in talking about kind of uh, about habits and about various other aspects of Systema in which kind of non-conscious decision-making comes in. But I'd like to kind of drill into it a little bit today um, and talk about how Systema is quite unique in that it's kind of, um, it's largely based around developing new intuitions, I think, and getting rid of harmful old rules of thumb that aren't really helping us out, um, both in terms of physical movement and defense and in terms of our wider lives and emotions. Um, and critically, it's, it's, it's like a way of retraining your intuitions rather than trying to kind of add more cognitive stuff on top and i think that's quite a fascinating and unique aspect of what systema does so i'd like to kind of get into that a little bit if that's cool with you that is because in fact yesterday i was on a, a group coaching call and we were talking about you know this is a bunch of people who've just begun uh working with me on changing their diets and lifestyles yeah and one of the key skills is when they would binge or do something they didn't want to do hmm. to recognize that that was a default program that was running, that there were intuitions yeah. that were in play. Hmm. And the same when we talk, we have a couple of folks there who are um, first responders yeah. and ex-military. Mm -hmm. And like one of the things you do when you're ex-military or first responder is you have to retrain yourself to do the opposite of what a normal person would do. Like run towards gunfire, run towards carnage. <laughs> yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah right. absolutely, yeah. Um, so, so that that idea of our intuitions yeah. can, can guide us either towards our goals or away from our goals yeah. and, and that there's, we have leverage over them is, is, I'm fascinated. So I can't wait to hear what we're going to talk about. Yeah, definitely. So first let's, let's kick off with kind of a definition of, um, what an intuition is. Um, and for this, uh, there's a really great book that I read some years ago and it kind of predates the whole Ma Malcolm Gladwell blink thing. Um, it doesn't predate... Daniel Kahneman's work on them, um, you know, thinking fast and slow. That that kind of came first. Um, but it's a int really interesting small little book. Uh, it's called Gut Feelings by a, a guy called Gerd Gezeringer, I believe his name is, which is a fantastic name. Have you ever read that one? I haven't, no. Yeah, it's a really nice little, it's, it's about, you know, 90 pages, something like that. And it's a really concise little exploration of psychologically um, what gut feelings are and why they're important. It was kind of almost a, like a little thesis arguing that we undervalue them um, mm. and we have them and we need to acknowledge that. Otherwise, we're going to be... Um, constantly at the mercy of this fallacy that we're trying that we have logical control over our decisions all the time and that we're making logical decisions when we're really not most 90 percent of the decisions we make are snap decisions um and they take the form of these kind of like gut feelings or just like it feels like that's about right and we act on those whether or not we convince ourselves that we're thinking them through or not that's usually what happens and he defines gut feelings as um decision decisions that are, or feelings that appear kind of uh, very rapidly in consciousness. They just seem to kind of appear in your head, right? Um, rather than that they kind of transpire after a, a lengthy period of weighing up pros and cons on a, on a two-part list or something like that. Um, they, they seem to have underlying reasons that aren't fully apparent to us, 
right? We can't explain every aspect of why we decided that way. Sometimes we try to do that after the fact, um, but real kind of gut feelings and intuitions just seem to appear and we're like, yeah, I feel like it's this way. And you can't fully explain to somebody why you feel like it's that way. And the third one is that they're strong enough to act upon. They feel strong enough. You're like, you're like yeah, good enough. You know, and, and you'll kind of act on those. And I thought that's a really interesting kind of generalized um, definition of kind of what gut feelings and intuitions are. Have you um, got anything kind of more on that that you've experienced? Um, well, we learned as, you know, as, as uh, predatory marketers yeah. to totally play on gut feelings yeah. and give people the, the, second, the, the second path of logic yeah. as a real afterthought, right. as the thing they need to feel good, yeah. and then the thing they need to convince their spouse. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right. Because, yeah, we all, we're all um, laboring under this, uh, this fallacy that mm. we're, we're logical. But the right. decision the decision is made in the animal brain, sure, right in the limbic system, like mm. you know it basically you know do i do I run away from it, do I fight it, do I mate with it, or do I eat it sure yeah and yeah. and at some at some level that's you know if as we've talked about those are those are be a good thing that they're pre analytical yeah. we, we don't have to consider yeah those things, and yeah. that we approach pretty much everything from from that perspective in sure. terms of gain or loss the The other thing that um I studied a long time like before the the uh, blink phenomenon was yeah. some of Tony Buzan's work mm. um and he he's talking about like mind mapping sure the mind mapping guy um yeah. As a way to sort of visually allow our intuitions to bubble up, and he talked yeah. about it in terms of like our our conscious brains can process so many bits, sure. but our subconscious can process like you know orders of magnitude more information. What feels mm. like mm. an intuition, a gut feeling, yeah. he saw as the process of a supercomputer. Sure, yeah, and I'm not, and I think there's some there's some kind of neuroscience to back that up um, that that we're actually processing more when we get out of our own conscious cognitive way right that when we actually allow this the the subconscious to to take effect that it can filter a lot more information but the, the downside of that is that it doesn't always filter it the way we want to right you know sometimes as kahneman points out the it will latch on to the first decision that looks like yeah good enough like kind of that way and sometimes and and those are subject to biases like recency bias and things like that right or um or it looking like something else that we've seen before, right? Um, and so I'd, I'd like to just kind of look at a few of these kind of rules of thumb. Um, and one of them you've actually already pointed out, which is um, one of these kind of uh, intuitions that we'll act on a lot of the time is if there's a default, right, do nothing, right? So if there's a default state that, that everybody else is doing, right, then it's the safest thing to do is do absolutely nothing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, basically, kind of that way, right? And that's mm -hmm. one, obviously, that you're health clients are, are suffering from, right? They're like, well, I'm not dead yet, right? I'm not sick enough that I feel like I need to do it, change my life drastically. So they're like, I got by on this diet for a long time and I got by on not a great deal of exercise. So while I feel like it would be nice to be healthier and it would be nice to experience more of these things, it's it, they're not desperate enough to change the situation yet. And the default state is eat like you used to. Is that kind of fair to say? Yeah, or especially when people come to me, they've already cognitively decided that it's not okay, mm -hmm. but in the moment it is. Sure. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Definitely. So, um, so, but it's important to point out that, you know, beyond just this idea of, uh, driving our behaviors towards like keeping us safe. Uh, so running away from things, running towards things and uh, mating with things or not mating with things that those kind of like limbic drivers as well. Um, that gut feelings, they're not, um, they're not just kind of primitive instincts that we've out evolved right mm -hmm. that we don't need anymore and they're actually serving a really important purpose in today's world which is 
staggeringly complex, a lot more complex than our world used to be, right? And one of the reasons why we have these these kind of rules of thumb and these subconscious decision processes is that under chaotic conditions where everything's changing really, really fast, right? And it's actually harmful to stop and think about things, right? If, you, if a tiger comes out of, you know, we talked about this before, like a tiger suddenly has escaped from a zoo and you had no idea and it just appears in your house. It's, it doesn't help to be like, what kind of tiger is that? And they, are they generally aggressive? And how likely is it that that's actually a tiger or am I hallucinating things? Like the, the best thing to do is run, right? Or freeze, right? Basically, or, or I don't know, try and get a chair between you and the tiger or anything but uh, stand there and analyze the situation, right? Pick something up, right. um, leg it, that kind of stuff. So it's, it's, it freezes from this analysis paralysis that we can get. Um, but in today's increasingly complex world, there are just too many variables to weigh up. And so actually intuitions aren't this ancient, dumb, primitive kind of gut and groin based decision-making complex that we want to try and out evolve right and and just and go to like pure logic and analysis and reason all the time sometimes we do want to um leverage our cog you know higher cognitive selves over over these things but sometimes we need to get out of the way and and trust them because they're very very good at making sense and filtering down highly complex systems as long as we're applying the right rules of thumb so i think one of the the goals of work of what we're doing in systema with regard to um defensive situations with regard to survival and with regard to kind of conflict and emotions and um, staying healthy and wider life is to identify the the rules of thumb that we've picked up inadvertently we've either taught them been taught them uh, seen them and just kind of gone along with the flow because they're the default or it's what the majority is doing which is one of the rules of thumb right do what the majority to do um, or as they say in japan you know, you know the nail that sticks up gets hammered down right so don't be that nail right um or that you've um some of them are kind of innate. Most of the innate ones are generally helpful, I think. We don't have we have very few innate intuitions that aren't helpful. Things like if it looks like a snake, be wary of it. Right? That's that's a helpful intuition. Right. Later you might learn that most of the snakes where you live are non venomous, and that's fine. But it still pays to be like be wary of it. Like look at it first, because you don't know it might be like an import it might be an mm. invasive species or something like that. Right. So most of all like be careful when you're up high right mm -hmm. pretty simple just like you're falling from high places will kill you right so that's a good intuition to have and if you get too let's say fair about that and you become like a base jumper or a parkour enthusiast and you just become unafraid of edges then that might be your undoing at some point right so it's worth at least having that sense um usually it's the ones that we learn um from our parents or or through adverse adverse child experiences or later on down the line um, that kind of stamp these extra rules of thumb into our brains and, and some of them just aren't useful and I think system is a really interesting way of unwinding those and trying to figure out which ones are useful which ones aren't maybe introducing a few new rules of thumb which is really hard to do actually um, I think the the, the, the low-hanging fruit is trying to try and introduce a few a few uh, very efficient useful new ones right that you have like stop and take a breath right before you do something or something like that right um but um undoing kind of very very long-held ones some of them are, are fairly easy to undo and some of them are a lot harder so it, it, it kind of i think we can go through a process an iterative process of thinking we've escaped an old pattern and then seeing it again uh, and then going back and sort of saying what can we replace it with and this kind of ties back into what we were talking about in habits before in that it's hard to replace a rule of thumb or a habit if you haven't got a new one to replace it with right you can't just go cold turkey and drop something like don't eat unhealthy food it's like well what are you going to eat then if you don't if you don't know how to cook decent vegetarian food then 
you, you're probably not going to go to the effort of eating that because it's just not going to look appealing. But if you maybe get into becoming a vegan chef, then your options open up and you're like, oh, there's all this food that I could have eaten, right? All that kind of stuff. But if you don't replace it with something, probably you're going to default to, yeah, but the chicken was delicious, you know, and kind of go back that way. So, so give me an example of, hmm. of, one, of one of those unhelpful rules of thumb that's learned through an adverse childhood experience or taught to us by society somehow. Okay, so a really simple one is, um, is tit for tat, right? Do unto others what they do to you, right? And this is used in kind of religion and in morality as a way of being like, you should be good, right? You should be good first and then others will be good for you. But unfortunately, it also works the other way. It works in terms of spite, right? If you do something crappy to somebody, if you don't cooperate them with them, if you do something spiteful, there's a tendency for you to return that behavior, right? Um, and in the wider scope of things, that's not that bad a tactic, right? It's, it's really not bad. If you look at kind of the classic... Um, like uh, psychological experiments where you'll um, where you both have a fixed amount of money or something like that, and you have the choice of giving somebody else, you know, ten dollars, and then you'll get like twenty back or something like that, or you can just keep yours and they get nothing. Do you know what I mean? Like kind yeah. of that way, and you kind of have this like um, can't right. remember that. Right, so the prisoner's dilemma. So prisoner's dilemma. So. Yeah, all those kinds of things, right? And um, one of the most effective tat um, strategies they found is tit for tat, right? That if you if you do what the other person does, um, but with the caveat that you should start with cooperate first, right? So um, one of the most effective strategies apparently is cooperate first, like be friendly first, right? Um, keep a memory of size one, right? So just kind of watch what the person does and pause like one time and then cooperate maybe a second time, even if they're being crappy the first time, then be good for another one. But if they, can, if they do it twice, then basically you should start not cooperating after that, right? So basically that's one of the best tactics you can, you can have, not just straight tit for tat, like I'll do what you do, but kind of watch, cooperate first, see what they do. And if they don't cooperate, then don't cooperate either. Basically that's actually one of the most, for all of the highly complex game theory solutions to that problem, that's still one of the best solutions in terms of the outcomes for that one. Um, as I understand it, right? Um, now, we learn this as kids, just like if somebody is mean to you, you should be mean back. If somebody's good to you, you should be good back. And in general, kind of just be good to people and you'll be okay. But this can kind of, this can hurt us in a, in a practical self-defense situation in that maybe somebody approaches us and um, tries to get close to us and sort of say, oh, hey, I'm just having trouble getting home. I just need like 20 bucks to get where I'm going, right? And you're like, well, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. I'll cooperate first. And then if they do something bad, then I'll do something bad back. But unfortunately, that first bad thing that they do could be to stab you right or it could be to punch you in the face and you might not get a chance to punch them in the face or do something about it back because they have the the initiative do you see what i mean um so sometimes you have to kind of counter that in defensive situations with um with another rule which is in most situations um cooperate first right be kind first and then observe and wait to see what the situation is but in high risk defensive situations if you're on your own in a car park late at night and you're a single female you know coming home from work or something like that that should not be the tactic the tactic should be defend yourself protect yourself first cooperate and be kind later right that mm -hmm. kind of thing so well and, and this you know what i hear from a lot of people who've been in situations like that is mm -hmm. that they also overrode a deeper intuition like mm -hmm. oh this doesn't feel safe sure and but I'm a good person. Sure. So, yeah. the, so that the learned thing mm. was was superimposed on a really helpful intuition. Sure. Um, like this, I should not be in this situation. Let me get out of here. Mm. What this person thinks of me is less important to me right now than my safety. 
Sure. Yeah, exactly. And Gavin De Becker talks a lot about that and like the gift of fear, right? He talks about that it's an intuition worth heeding, like most of the time. And often we suppress it with societal norms, like, you know, don't make a fuss or be kind to people or don't discriminate or, you know, um, profile people. It's like, sometimes it's okay to profile people, right? If they look shifty and they're like, they're a, a young male approaching you on their own, like between the ages of 18 and 13, it's late at night. Um, then you can be like, oh, well, most muggings are perpetrated by young males late at night between the ages of 18 and 30. If it's an old lady, it's you. It's less. It's possible that she might mug you, but it's far less statistically likely. So it's okay to profile sometimes too. You know, you can do that. Right. It's like, it's like I mean, you know, that brings up the issue of base rate, right? So <laughs> if we're if if we know the facts, if we know that it's eighteen to thirty year old males, that's very different from sure. saying it's eighteen to thirty year old males of a certain color. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. But. So basically, you're just kind of looking at the wider context of the thing. But um, but the point being is that you might have to modify your your basal rule, right? Um, so I had an intuition like this once um, when I went to Thailand. Um, I've, I've been to Thailand twice. I've been there. Well, I went once on my own. And I think the first time I went, I was very, very careful because I was in a new country and I was like, I'd heard that Bangkok could be shifty and people, you know, the tuk-tuk drivers could drive you off into kind of an obscure corner of the city and then leave you there or like say, oh, pay me extra money to come back or something like that. Or there's lots of cons going on. They have these jewelry shops where they try to get you to buy fake diamonds or things like that. You know, there's lots of kind of little shifty things going on. Um, and, it's, and it's kind of the drivers make a living at it. The, the more places they take you to, every time they go somewhere, they get vouchers for, for fuel and then they don't pay for their fuel basically mm. throughout the day. So, um, so you could be nasty about it and you could be refuse to go anywhere or do anything. But once you actually know the game and if the tuk-tuk driver's like, oh, I'll take you to see the lucky Buddha and then we're going to go to the shop, you can be like, okay, we'll go there. Like in the knowledge that you're not going to buy anything, you're not going to do anything there, but this guy will get his petrol vouchers and then he'll take you somewhere else and then you get like a, a cheap ride somewhere else in the city. He's happy, you're happy, nobody lost out to this whole thing, right? So after experiencing Thailand for the first time and realizing that that was the game, the second time I went back with my wife and... Um, and we were in Bangkok and then we were headed down to the islands to go scuba diving. Right? This is when we lived in Japan and it was actually cheaper to fly to Thailand and hang out for two weeks than it was just to live in Japan and buy groceries. Right? <laughs> so we kind of did, we're like, well, why not? Let's go. Right? Um, so anyway, so we went there and it was this kind of thing. The tuk-tuk driver, we said, oh, we want to go to, you know, what, Fragao, like the temple or something. And he's like, oh, no, first I'll take you to see Lucky Buddha. And um, maybe the first time I would have said, no, let's just go to where I said we we're going to go. Right? But this time I was like, well, yeah, I get the idea. Okay, let's go to the shop. So he took us to one place to see this um, it was a suit shop or something like that it was a tailor and in the end it, that worked out great I went into the tailors they made custom suits I got measured up and my the suit that I got married in was made there in Thailand and shipped to me in England and it was like 90 bucks and it was fantastic you know so that worked out great um, but we went from there to another spot this lucky Buddha that was down a bunch of back alleys and there was a tiny little Buddha statue in the corner I'm like what are we looking at and why is this you know, it wasn't like a big thing to see in a temple or something like that and I just got a funny feeling about the whole thing like the guy was standing there and he was kind of looking over his shoulders looking around and i'm like so this is it the lucky butter what do we do now and he's just like no yeah you just wait is the stay here it's lucky like that and then i looked up one alley to my left and there were two guys just kind of approaching from one side and i looked up another alley and there was another two guys approaching and i just everything in me was like this is wrong right this the, this is a bad situation to be in i don't know what is going on here whether or not they're going to try and mug us or whether or not like or maybe he doesn't know these guys maybe something else is going on but i just had an intuition an intuition that this wasn't good right um and I don't know how to drive a tuk-tuk. So, so I didn't want to punch the guy in the face, jump in his tuk-tuk and see if I could get away in it and stuff like that. Um, so I said to Heather, 
uh, in Japanese because we spoke both spoke Japanese that the guy couldn't understand right at that time and I was just like this is not good this is a bad situation and she's like why I'm like it just is like in Japanese and I said act sick like in Japanese she said what and I was like act sick and um and so she was like oh and she said stomach's hurting I was just like are you okay hun she's like yeah I don't feel very well so I said to the driver I'm like my wife's not feeling well I think we're going to skip the temple let's just take us back to the hotel right and he's like no oh, you can stay here a bit I'm like my wife's not well so I put the onus back on him right it would have been a big deal for him to keep us there if she was sick and he was like oh okay and we got back in the thing and we drove us back to the hotel the guys went off the other way and then when he dropped us off I turned around to pay him and he just sped off like as fast as he could. Now I'm fairly sure that was a bad situation, narrowly avoided due to an intuition, right? I could have stayed there or I could have analyzed the situation a bit longer. I could have talked it through with the guy and it could have ended up with a five on one mugging or something like that, that I wasn't prepared to deal with, with my wife next to me more than just girlfriend at the time. Right. And that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, so that was an example of, a, of an intuition that I had that, that did help. Right. And that, and I heeded that. So, so what I find interesting about that mm. is I've, as you're telling the story, I'm, mm. I'm putting myself in the situation. I just yeah. I noticed myself sort of making, you know, facial expressions of, of empathy and sympathy and fear. Sure. And realized, like, when you got to the point where you're like, well, now what are you going to do? Mm. Like, I would have, like, you know, run away. Like, I didn't... I didn't know where to run to. We were in a weird corner of the city, right? So if I'd have grabbed Heather and said, let's just run for it, I didn't know where to run, right? It was a bunch of alleys. We were in an obscure corner of Bangkok. So I'm like, right, I wouldn't but, know where to go. And right, like, but, yeah. but, but you yeah. know, the, in the absence of a plan, yeah. like I think I might have frozen, mm. but you, you still, you were able to heed the intuition mm. and then bring in something that, you, that probably wasn't innate. Sure. This idea of, okay, we're going to do a little subterfuge. Mm-hmm. We're going to use a woman's... You know, the, maybe the you know the Thai males sure. uh, sense of uh, you know responsibility responsibility for sure. a, a poor sick woman. Yeah, like that was yeah. Super, that was a very. I mean, I don't know where you would have learned that, or whether it was you know through martial arts or luck or or whatever. But there was something. Mm. There was something in that in that part of the story. Sure, that was a training. Yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm honest, to be honest, I'm not sure I picked it up. I certainly didn't pick that up through Aikido training, which is what I was doing at the time, right? I hadn't started training Sistema at that point. This was um, like, you know, 20 years ago nearly. That? So it's, um, so I'm not sure where I got it from. Um, but to be honest, it was kind of a gamble. I'm like, let's try this. And if it doesn't work, plan B is punch the guy in the face and steal this tuk-tuk, right? <laughs> it's like, so, so I didn't know, right? So it was just a gamble. But, um, but I think the most important thing is understanding that um, what I learned from that situation was that my intuition that um that thailand had become safe that i could play the game and all that kind of stuff was also wrong that i never should have been in that situation in the first place right Mm -hmm. and that maybe it was permissible if i was going on my own to play along with the game and go to weird little back corners of the city and be all right with it and all that kind of stuff but taking my girlfriend with me um made us more vulnerable right and it was harder and i probably should have heeded the intuition that that was wasn't a good idea but i think on some level i was trying to be brave and show how much i knew about the city and impress heather or something like that do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and that was overriding that the intuition i should have heeded even before i got into tuk-tuk does that make sense yeah so that in 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 future you become a little bit skeptical yeah of of or just noticing that feeling yeah right like the feeling of i'm gonna i'm gonna show what an alpha male i am yeah exactly like, it's like okay so it's not necessarily a bad thing hmm. but if i don't notice it 
yeah. then I can't, fi- I can't you know, solve for that in the equation. Yeah, I'm at the mercy of it. Yeah, and this happens, so coming back into Systema now, so this happens in Systema, right? We're trying to learn something new. Um, you're standing opposite a training partner that has volunteered to be there, who's lending you their body temporarily so that you can both work. You both agree the parameters of the drill. We're both going to work slowly or, you know, we're not going to punch each other in the face randomly. We're wrestling right now. Whatever the parameters of the drill are, right? And you start to work with each other. Um, and then as the drill becomes more kind of free form and you have the opportunity to kind of grab and escape freely or do other things, right? Maybe the guy starts to be awkward, right? And And this need to superimpose your dominance, might kind of rear its ugly head and then mean that you're not learning anything anymore from the drill, right? You might win, you might put the guy on the ground, you might demonstrate your dominance, but that wasn't actually what was important today in that moment. What was important was that you learned something new. And because you're not aware of that tendency to be like, if threatened, fluff up, right? That's another rule of thumb, right? Which is common to cats, to grizzly bears to snakes right if threatened make yourself look bigger right tense up your upper body um and kind of basically scare the other guy down right and that rears its head in systemic it's like if you get genuinely scared some guys will do that they'll fluff up and they'll try and do it um conversely you'll see more women like if frightened hide in plain sight right you'll see them shrink a little bit and kind of go into themselves and like you know um, and not be so much of a problem and that can be harmful too right that's not useful either you can lose your structure doing that kind of thing as well um so both of those those instincts aren't helpful, but they rear their heads. And as you say, if we're not aware of them, then it just kind of undermines everything else that we're trying to do. Right. And and one of the beautiful things about Sistema and the way I've uh, I've been trained by you and then in Toronto mm. is that you can always switch the goal of the of the training to mm. to that higher level noticing. Sure. So if I'm trying to work on differential tension in my body while I'm doing this drill, and I suddenly feel fear mm. and the need to hide or the need to dominate mm. like that becomes the thing that i can work on sure yeah exactly yeah that becomes your work for today right seeing what you're doing um vladimir on my last trip up to um toronto i was i was working with somebody and it was, i think it was like ground it wasn't full-on ground wrestling like free fighting all over the ground or something like that it was a drill where we we're both on our knees and one guy just had to basically come from a kneeling position to grab hold of you and you had to control his arms in some way in order to get control of his spine and then put him down right so you weren't allowed to like full-on jump on the guy and start jujitsuing him all that kind of stuff right um it was more just like let's see if i can kind of use the tension that you have in your arms anyway to control you and put you on the ground now the guy that i was working with was um he would attack and then um as soon as i made contact with his hands he would just kind of sink back onto his feet and, and just stay there um, and plant himself. So he wasn't really attacking. He was like half coming forwards. And then he would, the second I touched him, he would just retreat again um, in order to not be thrown. That became more important. He was brand new. He was a new guy. He was fairly, um, you know, pretty muscular, very, very strong. Hadn't really trained. I think it, was, it might've been his first night at HQ, like training, right? Um, and I was having trouble working with him. And I was getting a bit frustrated because I'm like, I'm not learning anything new here, right? I can throw the guy around in, in, using the different methods. But if he's not even going to attack me, there's no, I haven't got anything to work with. Right, he's just hanging out over there, and there's not really anything that I can do in the parameters. And I got a bit frustrated, but I got something out of it. Like I just decided, oh, I'm just going to work with my frustration, calm myself down. Um, when it's his turn, like he, eventually he was like, I can't do this, and I'm like, Well, it kind of depends on me attacking you in the first place, right? So I'm attacking you. See if you can read the timing that comes. You know, try and. Uh, engage with me about halfway through the motion don't do it too soon don't do it too late and we kind of had a conversation and we both got something out of it and then later on it kind of started to work but Vlad in some way observed this and then he was working with me one-on-one and he was saying 
you know, he goes, you move good. And he goes, but sometimes, you know, you don't allow yourself to work enough. And he's like, and I'm like, it, yeah, is I can see that. And he's like, it, he said, you can learn, you can, he said, it's not important that you win all the time, but it is important that you don't lose. Um, and what he meant by that was that if you're doing a drill with somebody like that, and they're not, they're not giving you the parameters that you need to learn the thing that you're supposed to be doing, um, or you're just kind of getting frustrated and it's all going apart. You can change the drill usually by handicapping yourself, right? So he was saying, if he starts doing that, then just work with one arm, right? <laughs> and, and make it even more difficult for yourself to control the guy, right? And then the guy will, uh, he'll feel less like he needs to dominate you because he's like, oh, there's no real joy in dominating somebody who's only fighting me with one arm, right? They, they don't feel any kind of sense of pride in the fact they've beaten you because they're using two arms and you're only using one, right? Or something like that. And he's like, and in that, he said that you might start to work well with one arm or you might not, um, but you're learning something new, right? So he might feel like he's winning the drill to an extent, um, but you, you haven't lost that training time, right? You've still made use of that training time and you've, you've still got value from that experience. He goes, so you don't have to win all the time, but you do have to not lose, right? If you just go in there and just lose the whole thing, that's not a good habit to get into. So. Yeah. I love the, the, the parallels between that and the Thailand story because, mm. in fact, in Thailand, that's exactly what you did. Right. Mm. You say, if I, I handicapped myself yeah. by now having a sick girlfriend. Sure. Yeah. Um, and b because in that situation, you knew you needed to take initiative, you needed yeah. to act. Yeah. Whereas at, in Toronto, it sounds like you sort of were resigned to, I'm going to get less out of this than I would if I were working with someone sure. different. Yeah. Interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it that way. But uh, yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Cool. So, um, so the, coming back to this idea for tit for tat, um, because I think this is a really, damaging um a damaging heuristic or i said damaging rule of thumb to play around with um in systema um where it re rears its head it's not just um in this in the sense of like if you use aggression then i'll use aggression right if you're trying to dominate me then i'll try and dom i'll fluff up more and that kind of stuff it actually manifests itself in all kinds of other ways in that um if you're doing free weight work for example and you're moving around and one person starts hitting right you might start hitting too even though that's not the best tactic um if the person grabs you by the neck, then you tend to grab them back by the neck. You tend to mirror not only the general sense of what they're doing, but you you will even mirror the exact thing that they're doing. They, they hit you in the face, you hit them in the face. Like grab your neck, you grab the neck. They start twisting your arm, you try twisting it back and trying to get a hold of theirs, right? Um, which, so you which, can which get we... trapped in this cycle of kind of they're controlling you by being the people with the initiative, right? It's like they got the first move in chess and you never quite caught up again, right? Um, and you just have to kind of play on the back foot the whole time. And that's a losing tactic. So actually some of, one of the best things that you can do is not play tit for tat. If the guy starts to wrestle, you start hitting him. If the guy starts to hit you, you evade and see if you can close and wrestle or keep contact. You know, or the guy grabs your neck, you grab his leg. Right. So it's it's counterintuitive, um, but not playing tit for tat can actually offer you a lot more freedom because there's only one way to play tit for tat, but there's a thousand ways to not play tit for tat. Right. So which way is the path to more creativity? Right. Yeah, and I was thinking about that in terms of like multiple attackers, mm. where. The most effective thing that I've seen is yeah. somebody hits you, you turn around and hit somebody else. Which yeah. Is, yeah. It's, it's, it's surprising. It's counterintuitive. Sure. And it tends, you know, it's like a really good punch. Like you're just sure. sort of transferring it. Yeah. Um, it reminds me of it when I did um, improv. There was a game we used to do where you had to sort of say, say words speedily. And would, you would point to an object in the room and say anything other than the name of the object. Hmm. So I'd point to the microphone and I'd say toaster. And then right. you'd, you'd have to point to the music stand and say elephant. And right. it was surprisingly hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That's like in that game Taboo, I guess. You ever played that, um, the word game where you have a, 
a, a keyword at the top of the card and there's six words that you can't say mm. right and 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 some people are really good at that and i quite like it it's very parallel and you have to say it very quickly and get the other people to guess and uh, it's like charades but you just can't say those six words pretty much but there's some people um my sister's uh ex-boyfriend kev was just terrible about it he would stare at it and he'd be like oh god oh blimey oh uh and he, st- and he just goes uh church and it was the actual word right he would pontificate <laughs> for about a minute and a half and then just say the word out loud he was just had a terrible time trying to think laterally or go around it you couldn't do it yeah and that's that strikes me as a similar thing so how do you practice not um reversing the tit for tat um i think just that i think first of all you have to you have to experience the fact that the tit for tat doesn't work otherwise you're not motivated to do it right if if that heuristic developed for a reason um and you feel like on some deep subconscious level that that it's always the best strategy that just mirror what the other guy did whatever chess move he makes you know if he moves the knight forwards then you do that as well and eventually that will be okay right um it's convincing yourself that that kind of that game of um losing side chess or like downside chess or like tic-tac-toe where the other person gets to plant the first x in the middle and that sort of stuff it's it's just you're probably not going to win with that strategy you're already behind the curve so you have to prove to yourself that you need something else right and and so for me one of the best drills that i've i've done with my guys is the get stuck on purpose drill right which is you start to um the attacker will start to grapple you right um and you have to start to try and escape and the, the attacker's goal is to just to keep um closing you down closing you down closing you down um until you're in a position where you're just totally stuck, completely immobile, right? And you've tried everything that you think you know to get out of it. You've tried all the fancy moves that you'll normally do as a response to to getting grabbed or whatever it's going to be. Um, and you're completely stuck and the guy should make you stuck. And it's only at that point that you have to start coming up with creative new solutions that aren't a direct response uh, to the things that you've done before. You're not just calling back memories of things that you've done before, right? Um, so it's not just in the sense of, if he grabs you, you grab him back. But we also get this idea that if he grabs you around the neck from this angle, always use this move and it will get you out of it. And that becomes a type of tit-for-tat thing as well. And that's not good either, right? And I think there's a downside to very technique-based arts that, that purport to do that because you'll get stuck. And we can get onto the other problem with that, which is analysis paralysis as well. Too much information um, can be a terrible thing. And intuition is actually the solution to that. And, uh, and f- so that becomes difficult. Well, that was one of the most frustrating things for me mm-hmm. in beginning to train Sistema. Mm-hmm. is that I wanted the one thing to do. Yeah. Right. And I think it's one of the, one of the the wonderful things about Sistema is that it's like that that naming game yeah. where there's there's only there's only one wrong answer. Right. But there's an infinite number of potential right answers mm. and that so we were we're not observing Vlad on YouTube to find out what to do. Yeah. But to find out how to think and feel about doing it. Right. Or to even just to see the possibilities, right? So to see which of those resonate with you and whether you know to to see if you can distill the principle. So in a lot of ways we're trying to distill that rule of thumb, right? We're trying that's what we're working towards. And that's what kind of makes system a bit unique is that we're I think we're acknowledging that less is more in Sistema, like, and we're trying to work towards efficiency, not in towards adding more complexity, more techniques, more possible, you know, dirty tricks or ways of moving that will outfox the opponent. Right? We're we're trying to actually we explore those things, but then we try and kind of simplify it. And, and a nice kind of um, if you want to look at the extremes between these two things, right? Boxing is very very simple in its execution as a martial art. Right? You have like a you know you have a jab, you have a cross, you have hooks, you have like a shovel hook to the body. Um, you only using your hands, right? And you have a limited number of kind of footwork movements. You can draw the guy, you can press the guy, you know, and you have some head movement, stuff like that. Um, put those together and you've got a fairly wide variety of movements, right? Um, 
but it's not quite kind of infinite. It kind of is in the sense that it's three-dimensional, but you're still limited to like, these are the things that I'm going to do. I have to put the surfaces of my fist on your face. I can't even hit you with the bottom of my fist. I can't even hammer fist or anything like that. But that's not to say that boxing isn't spectacularly effective as a defense system. And one of the reasons why it is, is that it's very, very simple. It removes a lot of options. It's like, if you're attacking me, if you're close enough to punch in the face, I will punch you in the face, right? Um, if your hands are up and I can't punch you in the face cleanly, then I'll hit you in the body. Your hands will drop and then I'll hit you in the face. That's a fairly simple heuristic to use. Mm-hmm. And it works spectacularly well and has been used for thousands of years, right? Boxing's been around for a long, long, long time since ancient Greece, as far as we know, right? Um, and it works really well. And now you contrast that with something like super complex Kung Fu or grappling systems um, or Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or something like that, right? And you have a thousand different ways of escaping from different things, a thousand different locks. People are coming up with new, you know guards positions and new ways of kind of stalling people or getting them into things and that's fine that's great um but what you'll see with that is that faced with like a thousand different options that you could apply um, it's hard to know intuitively which one is the best one right so i think the process of mastery in art like that is um you're trying to add on new techniques add on new techniques but the people who really figure it out are the ones who are like well what's the high percentage thing here right what's the what's the how do i get like an arm bar from every position that i'm in and what's the principle that allows me to fish for an elbow so that i can get an arm bar from any angle rather than studying it, it's like okay if his arm goes here you go here if his hip goes here and i think that's the downside you'll get that analysis paralysis now what i think systema does which is really interesting is that it acknowledges that there are uh, lots and lots of ways to move that you don't just have to box with your hands that you can use different parts of your arms your elbows your shoulders last week we were doing that work right with weaponizing the shoulders so that somebody gets past your hands in boxing you would just clinch them and hold them there right or maybe you push them back so you could punch them in the face at your preferred range and we can use the shoulders to like pop them in the face right you get disqualified from a boxing match for doing that but we can do that right we can use legs you can use your hips you can use your chest as a separate kind of um, way of generating movement or strikes or wherever it's going to be. But again, if you opened up all of those possibilities and then you said, well, you could do anything. And then the guy approaches you and he's a highly trained boxer, then probably he's still going to win because he's using that less is more principle of like, well, I know what works. <laughs> the jab cross is going to make you unconscious and you're waiting for any number of these, you know, weapons that you can deploy. Right. So, so we explore first, right. We explore the possibilities of the movement, but then the goal is still let's hone that down to what's efficient and what principle I can use that allows me to deploy those things. So in that case, it might be use the closest weapon to the target, right? So if the guy is at range, then you might punch him in the face in the same way that a boxer would with the with an outstretched arm, right? But if he's very, very close, it's far more efficient to just hit him with the, with the shoulder that's right under his chin than it is to try and break, create space, do three movements to get him back at range and then punch him in the face again. Does that make sense? So you have to distill a new rule of thumb that helps you to filter all the new possibilities that you've had. And I think we do that constantly. We're like, let's explore all the possibilities. And now let's look at a principle that allows you to apply those possibilities. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah, and it reminds me of when I when I look at mastery in any domain, I think that's mm. a great definition of it. Because when, when, when people are beginners, mm. you know, I'm, I'm just uh, on the blackboard behind me, I'm, I'm, I'm outlining a coach training program and trying to help people in 12 weeks become good Sort of health coaches or life coaches or performance coaches. Yeah. And when I start thinking about it, I just make long lists of all the things that they need to know and all the techniques. Yeah. And as as a beginner, you might look, you might watch someone do some coaching mm. and think, oh, I, I need to learn that technique and that technique. Sure. And there's, there's certainly a place for the sort of you know divergent. Sure. Where you're just adding things to your basket. Just exploring. Yeah. yeah. But what separates the, you know, the master mm. is that they've come back down to a very few set of of things that they just keep applying mm. appropriately. Yeah. Right. As opposed to, 
you know, here's a situation. I have 20 different ways of getting the person to envision their future. Let me just choose one that seems fun at the time. Yeah. As opposed to like the master may choose one and may not even be able to articulate why. Yeah. But it was something that was said at the very beginning about mm. I have trouble seeing this. So that, so let's mm. try a visualization or let's not try a visualization. Yeah. Yeah, that's very much, very much so. And that actually reminds me of another, um, another book that we were both into. I think I might have read this one first and recommended to you, which is not always the way around it goes. You seem to read more. But it was the Greg McKeown book, The Essentialism. Yep. Oh, that yep. one. And he has that three-part um, process in there. I think it's explore first, right? Um, and then it's eliminate and then it's execute, right? So it's like explore all the possibilities and then cut out all the ones that you just feel like aren't going to work and then just go big on those like couple of things, right? And that's, you know, that's more with a view to kind of like time management and productivity and stuff like that. But I think it's kind of the same thing. If you, if you look at that in a, as a long as a long game in what you're studying, how you're studying Sistema. So it's like, you don't want to cut yourself down and just be like, I'm going to be that kind of mover, that kind of fighter, right? I'm going to be the kind of guy who grapples or I'm going to move like, uh, Martin Wheeler or wherever it's going to be, right? <laughs> Not that, you know, that's a lot of things in and of itself. Good luck trying to move like Martin Wheeler, right? But, um, but I think if you cut yourself down too soon and be like, that's the thing that I want, then you haven't given yourself a chance to explore everything, right? And at the same time, if you're just trying to pick up new tricks, and Konstantin Komarov has talked about this recently in one of his blog posts, that the biggest enemy towards learning Sistema or becoming proficient in Sistema, he calls scatteredness. It's, it's the tendency to kind of keep... Um, dabbling in various areas and just kind of keep reaching out and trying to acquire new bits and pieces without really integrating that back into your whole. And the, and the antidote to that, he says, is cohesiveness. It's, it's trying mm. constantly to just kind of make everything, pull it back to your spine, pull it back to what you can already do, and by all means explore, but you, your goal is to make it cohesive and efficient. It's not to add new tricks all the time. And I think that's... um. So that long game in Sistema, I think that's the one to play, right? It's like explore by all means, but don't get carried away with the exploration. Don't um, go off on a on a grappling tangent where you want to be the most masterful tricky grappler in the world or on a, or on a boxing tangent where you're going to be like, I'm going to kickbox like Anderson Silver or something like that. Right. Your goal, by all means, you can study those things a bit, but if you go too far down that rabbit hole, then you end up with all of these ideas and no way to apply them. Right. So I think um, the, the goal is always come back to the efficiency, come back to the, the principles. And the more, the longer I train, the more I see that those principles were there all along. And Vlad and Michael keep telling us over and over again, what the principles are. Um, and we just, think that we know better and we think we can like find some better way of doing it but we really can't it's just a process of exploring and then seeing everything in the context of, of those principles i think and i think that's also that uh, the three e of, of explore eliminate and execute is also fractal so that you mm. can look at it as your entire systema career you mm. can also look at it as each class sure right because if you're not executing yeah as part of as part of that you're not really learning anything so yeah yeah um Right, or even down to the drill, right? Right, so, each yeah. drill and each 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 moment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, so this is um, so this is interesting. What I kind of like to kind of end on on this one is this idea that um, intuition is kind of a way of applying uh, simplicity, right, as as a as an antidote to uncertainty. And I think this is really really important in today's world because we just face more and more uncertainty, right? Political, economic. Right, where are the jobs going to be? We're going to be half of us will be replaced by robots within the next fifteen, twenty years. Right, drivers, miners, people in information, even right, are going to be replaced by AI and things like that as we go along. Right, um, we don't know uh, the the trade climates. We don't know kind of where it's best or easiest to live. Like where your energy is going to come from. All those different things, and this can leave us in our daily lives in a state of kind of 
again, analysis paralysis. Like, what do we do? Do we save up as much money as possible? Do we move to a place where we feel safer? Do we, um, you know, throw our lot in with this political group? Do we do this? Do we do that? Right. Um, or even in the healthcare field, right. Um, that, that you have, right. So there's a, there's a million options for every ailment that you have. Um, and there's a million recommended diets for every, uh, for everybody who has IBS or something like that. Somebody will say, you need to go ketogenic and you need to go vegan. And you know, not that you need to just intermittent fasting and eat whatever you want. Right. There's everybody in his dog has a recommendation for things that you could do. And you could scroll the internet forever looking at exploring possibilities. But at some point you've got to come down to like, uh, okay, what are the principles here? How do I, and distill simplicity from this whole thing. And I think like Michael Pollan's approach to food, for example, is a fantastic, was a fantastic kind of a way of rounding all that up in a field beset with so many different pieces of advice. He just sort of said, eat food, right? Real food, right? Mostly plants and not too much, right? And three little simple principles. But I think that's so powerful. And if you abided by that, you could avoid probably 95% of the problems that, um, that, beleaguer people like in with gut problems and you might sort of say mm, it'd be better entirely plants than mostly plants but you could you could argue that out but the mostly plants in and of itself is a big deal right it's the if it at least gets people to do that whether it's even if it's like get rid of and eat real food as well just that just eat single ingredient foods and that kind of stuff it's it's a big deal and i think the same thing is true in all aspects of our lives right um and in gut feelings um Gerzinger points out that the 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 places where less is more the places where applying those simplicity principles will help you succeed it's not always sometimes you want to get as much information as you can and you want to take all of that information in right and you want to study it as deeply as possible and then you want to kind of act on that and maybe there's you know things in politics that that might be the case or if you're making a really complex decision about you know whether to change a whole relationship or whether to like move across the country or to a new country you might want to do a big list of pros and cons and explore everything and then logically kind of analyze right um but when there's some there's three situations at least in which simplicity and this idea of kind of relying on your gut feelings can be better than taking in more information and the three that he points out is one where there's a like a beneficial degree of ignorance right and where it's actually better to be a little bit ignorant than it is to have more things at your uh, disposal right so one so we might come back to that boxing example it's better to have a really good knowledge of a few ways to punch than it is to have a thousand ways to kick and punch and no way to apply them right if you study hap keto or something like thousands of techniques and yet you can't punch somebody in the face reliably right? <laughs> or something like that right so there's a beneficial degree of like well no i'm just going to punch you in the face that's much simpler right that way and um, the example that he gives in the book is the recognition heuristic so if i was to ask you i think the one he talks about in the book is um if i was to say to you which is bigger which has the bigger population, Detroit or Milwaukee? What would you say? I'd say Detroit. Why? Because You've been to both? Have you measured them? Or? Yeah. No, because no. uh, I hear about Detroit more. Yeah, exactly. So the, the recognition heuristics has, um, if I've heard of one, but I've not heard of the other, or I hear about the less, the, the, the chances are that one's bigger, right? So you, but you know both of those cities, so you have an idea that they're at least both big cities. Now, if I was to say to you, which one is bigger, Birmingham or Barham? Barham? Barham, yeah. Birmingham or Barham, yeah. I don't know Barham. So So what would you say? Hmm. Well, I would say Barham because it's probably some far-off country with the... Uh, no, so these, these are two cities, right, in, oh. in Britain. These are two, well, two towns, let's say. Like oh, see, so I was, I was in yeah. Birmingham, Alabama, so... I oh, okay, yeah, so in Britain. So I'm trying to give you a non-familiar example. Okay, so, so we're going to say Birmingham. 
Birmingham, right, yeah, it's a big city. Barham is a tiny little village that's right next to Limminge, where my parents okay. are. Or like Canterbury or Catford, right? Which, uh-huh. which, which are two of those? Right, Canterbury. Canterbury, right. It's in the tales. It's ancient. It was built by Romans. It's a fairly solid assumption that it's bigger than Catford, right? And it is, right, that way. So um, so that recognition heuristic works most of the time. So if I've heard of it and I haven't heard of the other one, then it works most of the time. Um, so there can be a beneficial degree of ignorance. But if you started to analyze everything, if I said which is bigger, um, I don't know, uh, San Jose or Milwaukee, Right, then you might start to be like, eh. do you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're kind of like in the middle, and you start analyzing, and you start, you go through a whole bunch of different things, and it's like that thing in the pub quiz where your first response was probably the right one, and then you talk yourself out of it, and then you give the wrong answer, and then you're like, damn it, I should have just gone with number one, right? That's the instance of where you can reason your way out of. There's a beneficial degree of ignorance, and the recognition heuristic is an example of when that can help, right? When there's too there's too much information, you're better off just going with it. And um, the second one is when. There are specifically when there are unconscious motor skills present, right? If you're trying to solve a physical problem and you have unconscious motor skills, you have some degree of mastery in movement or something like that, trying to think something through and deliberate will actually get in the way of those motor skills mm-hmm. functioning. And that's enormously relevant to Sistema, right? That if you try and kind of think about strategizing and being too tactical, you don't allow your innate char- characteristics to come out, right? So that's that's a really, really big deal. Right. And And innate motor skills are, I think, much more relevant to life than people think they are like it's clear in sistema sure but even in something like do you reach for an apple or a cliff bar yeah you know do you get do you take the carrots out of the fridge sure like you can actually have people practice mm. you know like going to the store and putting a bag of apples in their cart yeah and it's it's actually a motor skill it's, yeah it's not just a decision that you're going to make um, at some you know, psychological or intellectual level. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the third one is when, when there's, um, there's a freedom of choice paradox, right? When you've got so many options um, that it becomes increasingly difficult to compare those actual options, right? And this one's, I think, relevant to like healthcare and the stuff that you're thinking about. Like if you go to a doctor and you're like, I have this pain in my gut, they're like, well, we could do an MRI, we could do this, we could give you a course of antibiotics, we could do a bunch of other things, right? And they, they have a whole bunch of different recommended options. And you're like, well, that seems like too many. Well, I came to the doctor for you to tell me what it is that I should do, right? Well, like, and, and increasingly this is happening in healthcare, I think. Right. You know? Well, and a big problem in healthcare over, over a long time is that the yeah. doctor has their heuristic yeah. and you can see that doctors in different hospitals or in different towns have very yeah. different approaches like sure. you know things like do we do um, a cesarean it can yeah. range from like 13 percent to like almost 40 percent sure not based on anything clinical yeah right? or, or depending on their training if like i have a knee problem like if you talk to an orthopedic surgeon they'll be like that's great we can just cut that open and fix that right mm-hmm. but if they're trained in like longer term physiotherapy or the myofascial technique or something like that, they might be like well let's do that Right. There might be a bunch of things that you could do before we go to surgery. Right. But if they're not really trained that way or, or they just see surgery as the be all end all, then they're going to recommend surgery. Of course they are. Or if they get some sort of they get more money for it. Let's be honest. Right. Some or if there's a, a drug that they can prescribe that they're getting a little bit of a kickback for that might happen, too. Right. So um, so there's an interesting actually heuristic that he talks about in the book with that one in that you shouldn't ask a doctor for their recommendation. You should ask the doctor what would they do if it was their mother. Right, because otherwise, if you're like, what would you recommend? They're like, well, and they're weighing up this whole thing. And the heuristic is, if in doubt, recommend expensive drug that gets me a kickback and probably will cure you. Right, but if they're like, well, well, if it was your 90 year old mother who was suffering from Alzheimer's and the and the, the um, no, the drug might help relieve some symptoms, but it also has like with much older people a, a chance of giving them a heart attack or something like that. Right, he'd be like, mm, if it was my mother, I wouldn't give them anything. I'd just change diet and you know do some engagement or something that might help bring them around out. So you're like, okay, thanks. Right, so that actually turns out to be the much better heuristic to use <laughs> instead of like ask the figure of authority what he recommends. Do you see what I mean? So that's, that's an interesting one, I think. 
Right. Of course, my heuristic is always, can you show me the published studies <laughs> yeah. on, the, on the efficacy and risks of this particular treatment compared to all the other ones? Yeah, and that, that is a tough one as well because you can find 30, 50 different published studies from people who have different vested interests, right? And then you still have to sift through that information and you can still end up with a paradox of choice. Do you see what I mean? So it's very tough. So then what's your, what is your heuristic for filtering between 30 different studies about half of which come to different things. It's like you just go with the go with the majority, or do you? It has to be an overwhelming majority in one way. Where do you draw the line? Well, it depends on the on you know how mature the the field is. Usually, I look for outcome measures as opposed to biometrics. Hmm. Um, I always look for who's who's doing the funding. Yeah, um, and I look for is there a sort of an outlier that. You know that, that looks maybe interesting or promising, but really is completely at odds with what we think we know. Because mm. right, there's you know we talked about like there's a, there's a replicability crisis in a lot of fields where something comes up and we're like oh that's the new that's the new thing we all know, and then yeah. when you start to try to replicate it, it, uh, it falls apart. Like we've you know we've seen this with sort of the power poses. Yeah. Um. From uh, from Amy Cuddy at Harvard, we've, mm. we've you know there's there's a lot of stuff that's like oh that's really new and cool, mm. and of course there's a publication bias, mm. right? That anything that's old and not cool, like mm. no one's going to publish a study saying broccoli's good for you, sure. but they will publish a study saying oh bacon seems to uh, you know provide these benefits surprisingly because, yeah surprisingly yeah, right yeah. because because it's uh, it's newsworthy sure and it's. And every you know every no scientist wants to go into the field to replicate what other people have done. They want to make their own discoveries. Right. Yeah. So so there's a lot of heuristics mm. that go into you know evaluating. I would say it's still it's 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 an art rather mm. than a science. But yeah. the other thing I, other thing I wanted to add before we close is sure. that I love the three E's of mm. of Greg McEwen, and I would I would add two more mm. that I think um, can help us when we don't have information. Okay. And, 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 and that is to experience and mm. then evaluate. Mm. So that if someone says, okay, I don't know what to do about food. Should I go vegan or paleo or, or keto or, mm. or intermittent fasting or Mediterranean? Mm. Then the answer is it does, you know, try something yeah. and see, experience it yeah. and then evaluate, is it getting you where you want to go? Yeah. So that, you know, the, the act of staying stuck mm. is, is completely different from the act of going, Vegan or paleo. Yep. And either, both of those will give you information that will tell you if you're on the right path. Yeah, that actually uh, reminds me of the podcast that you recently did with the, was the venture capitalist guy who went to, uh, um, he's set out to basically make 30% of the US oh, yeah. vegan uh, by yeah, Matt 2030. Tolman. Matt Tolman, yeah. So I was listening to that and his path into veganism was that he went hardcore, I'm going to eat steak three times a day for like a month was his plan. And after 10 days, he just felt terrible. And he was like, well, that didn't work, right? And then he's like, let's try the polar opposite. It wasn't for an ethical reason or anything like that. He's just experimenting with his body. And so he experimented first, he evaluated the results and that put him on the path towards exploring um, vegetarianism or veganism, right? I, I think so that was yeah. very much that way. And I think that's great advice for um, for people in Sistema too, right? So like, as I said earlier on, how do you get over that tendency to do tit for tat? How do you get over that tendency to fluff up and tense up and try and make yourself bigger or dominate or get aggressive in response to a drill or, sh or to shrink away, right? Or to create space all the time. That's not necessarily a good tactic either, right? You, maybe it's better to slip away without breaking contact. So if you want to 
before you explore the possibilities of what else you could do, you probably have to experience it failing first. So it's the same thing. It's like, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you get aggressive, fluff up, try and wrestle the guy, whatever it's going to, but do something, right? Um, experience that and then, and then evaluate the results. If they're not working for you, then probably you're going to be open now to exploring the things that the instructor is showing you. Um, you're going to be open to the idea that um, maybe you need to simplify your tactics, but in a different way, right? Um, and then you need to practice executing that thing, right? Um, as in under pressure and like in context. Right. Another book, I don't think I've uh, talked to you about this one called Black Box Thinking by mm. Ma- Matthew Syed. And he, it's basically, you know, a, a way of, of well, the, the example he gives is the airline industry, the aviation industry has mm. black boxes. Sure. And anytime anything goes even remotely wrong, mm. they get a team of experts on it to, to fix it. And aviation has been traditionally getting safer and safer and safer kind yeah. of exponentially yeah. compared to healthcare. Mm. where everything gets sort of swept under the rug and no one wants to admit fault. And so mm. no one wants to, you know, and, and how many uh, people die every year from medical error, which is, sure. you know, yeah. according to the CDC, the third leading cause of death in the United States. Wow. Yeah. And how we can apply black box thinking. And Sistema is a perfect example because it's, it's so finite. Mm. And, the, and you can have so many, you know, in, in, in one 90-minute class, you can have 100 different experiences of... Mm doing something and discovering if it's working or not. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Great. I'll have to put that one in the show notes and read that one myself. That sounds great. Cool. Well, thanks very much, Howie. That's, uh, intuitively, I think that was a good one. <laughs> cool. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about training at NC Sistema, you can visit us online at www.ncsistema.com. If you'd like to find out more about Sistema classes and seminars worldwide, please visit www.russianmartialart.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can share it with your friends online, you can write a review on iTunes, or you can support us directly with a monthly contribution of $1, $5, whatever you can afford. To become a Sistema for Life patron, please visit www.patreon.com slash ncsistema. Any and all contributions are very much appreciated. They help us to keep the podcast going and to keep it advertising free. Many thanks, good health, and see you in training.